listening to Masters of Divinity, a podcast brought to you by Blue Apron. Uh, you what if kill we just him, we grill him. <laughs> what? <laughs> you kill him, we grill him. What if we just started doing like fake adverts? I don't know why I said adverts, but what if we did fake ads for like already established companies that are like on every podcast and we just roll with it? Like, I would love to do ads for like companies that like you should not advertise for, like Michelin. This podcast brought to you by the Cato Institute. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Hi, you're listening yeah. to uh, Bible Talk with uh, John and in, in Char- with Brother John and Brother Charles. Uh, <laughs> Today we're going to hear from the inspiring words of the psalmist, who once said that, as a deer panteth for the water book, so doth my soul pant for thee. You know what's funny, Chuck, is that I feel like you really have that in you. Like, I really think that you could be, you could be like an NPR religious host. Like, I could be on, I could be on Moody Bible Radio. You could, you could, you could be an easy listening radio host. (laughs) It's like, it's like seven o'clock on a weeknight. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just like, hey, I know you're at home right now. Maybe, maybe feeling a little lonely. Maybe you're feeling a little, a little overwhelmed with all the things that are happening in the world. But you know, you can always turn to the scriptures, and the scriptures are going to give you the insight and the power that you need from the Lord to get you through these times. See, I think the word. Ha- I think the Lord has a word for you today. We're going to open up Psalms 51. See, the funny thing is, I, the, what makes the, the bit funny to me is that I think you could do that. Like, I think you'd, you'd have a career in that, Chuck. I, I've been told I have a radio voice. You do. I think you do. I think, you, I think you're a good broadcaster. Oh, thank you. You could think on your toes. You know, you, and it's because you're, you're, to be a priest or, or a pastor or a reverend or anyone, you have to be good at public speaking. Mm-hmm. And those public speaking skills, like, work great with broadcasting. I do not have those skills. Uh, so I have to pretend I'm good at podcasting by emulating my favorite podcasts. I hope no one here listens to Chapo Trap House. Because <laughs> that's... <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're, uh, you're, you're the Dennis Leary to Bill Hicks. Uh, we're going to talk about Bible translations. This is one of those things where it's like... I feel like you can you can think too much about it. Yep. Like it's something that feels a little innocuous, but at the same time, people can, can make a real big stink about it when it's really just like, no, 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 I just need to know what, to, I just need to know what to read. But what's funny is that like, and I'm going to be totally frank here, but the whole issue surrounding translation is sort of like the final nail in the coffin of my fundamentalism. Because I remember just finally being like, like throwing my hands up me and like, I give up. <laughs> like, I, I don't know who to listen to. I don't know what to read. I don't know what, who, like, it's just like, I can now see the entire spectrum of Christianity and you all like hate each other. And I don't know who I'm supposed to listen to. Was it because of this, the wide variety of translations? Is that? It was a wide, the A, wide variety and B, everyone said that their translation was the definitive translation. Hmm. And then I started researching, like, you know, the actual, like, Greek Bible and stuff and reading about apocryphal stuff. And then just being like, but what about all of this? Like, I don't know. It just, just felt like there wasn't – I feel like there had to be scholarly work done and nobody was really willing to do that. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, there, there are 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who do, do I mean, they do do that scholarly work, but I think the, I think with a lot of the evangelical Bible translations, where you, that, that's where you find the, the wide variety of Bible translation work is happening among, like, Baptists and, you know, because they've got, like, the Holman Standard Bible or the English Standard Version or the NIV, you know, yeah. Baptists and evangelicals have, like, this whole range of translations that are going on. And I think, I think that wing of it approaches it from a very fundamentally, I don't want to say flawed, but incorrect place because that tradition treats the Bible differently than the vast majority of Christianity throughout its history has treated the Bible. Really? Yeah. I guess when you're coming from a place where the Bible is supposed to be inerrant, right? And like 100% right. literal, then like you would be obsessing over that, right? And I think that's why, yeah. because at this stage in my fundamentalism, I was Calvinist. And so that was like very important to me. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating about that topic is that that basically treats the Bible on similar footing to the way Jews treat the Torah or the Tanakh, but mostly the Torah. Mm -hmm. um, the Tanakh is the Jewish word for like the full, what we would call the Old Testament. Um, but the Torah is really the key there to the five books of Moses or like how Muslims treat the Quran, um, where these books are considered to be the decisive final ultimate revelation of God to humanity. Right. That's not how Christianity has viewed the Bible. The Bible is ancillary, right? That's why we use the terms Old and New Testament, because the Bible testifies to something outside of itself. So the Bible has its value because it testifies to Jesus, but right, like the Bible is secondary to Jesus. But when you treat the Bible as the ultimate decisive revelation of God to humanity, you treat it now the way Muslims treat the Quran and and Jews treat the the Torah. What's and, and what I, why I bring that up is because in both of those other traditions, Islam and Judaism, they don't really believe in translation. Hmm. They think that if you're going to read this, you need to learn the original language and read it there because there's always something lost in translation. And so like, in fact, even in Islam, there are no English translations of the Quran. There are English interpretations of the Quran but right. you cannot translate the Quran, right? So you can interpret it in another language, but you cannot translate it into another language, which is an interesting distinction. That's, um, I, was, I was thinking so about that, about the difference yeah, so between interpretation and, and that, translation. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so I would say that, that, so that's, that's the fascinating, to me, that's the fascinating thing about where that wing of Christianity is, is that they're treating the Bible the way that they're treating the Bible in a way that other religions treat their sacred books. But at the same time, they don't do, they don't go all the way. Mm -hmm. Right. There's like this, in, there's this weird little like in between thing, right. Where it's, it's like the scholars and the preachers, they kind of are expected to know the Greek and Hebrew and they'll talk about the Greek in their sermons, you know? Uh, but they just, of course they get that from someone else's book about it. Um, but you know, the translation work is trying to get right. Like as close to the meaning of the original languages or whatever as possible. Right. Which we'll get into this a little bit. Whereas like, why not just, 
learn the original language. <laughs> yeah. Why not encourage that? Right. You That's know? interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, we're trying to get so close to it. Well, just instead of having like, 2,000 different Bible translations, why don't you just focus on learning the language like that's duolingo's free on your phone <laughs> you know uh, i mean i know koine greek is different than modern greek but right like you can at least get some approximation to these things you know you could you could do that but wouldn't that be an, a slap in the face of martin luther then like you'd have people that you know who would say right. that you're, you're 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 cutting people off from the bible then you know people who don't have time or the money or the patience to learn a new language right yeah, and it's important to note that Luther Luther believed in translating the Bible into vernacular languages because, well, one, right? Like, the poor could not afford to learn different languages, right? Right, like that they weren't that wasn't you know like that was that was if if you're growing up being apprenticed to do what your dad's done and his dad before him and his dad before him, right? You're not they're they're not teaching you Latin. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know right. right like that's that's the purview of, of a special of a special class of people so what luther what luther believed in and he was following after pre, after precedent that was set by like jan hus and um um oh come on what's his name wickliffe john wickliffe um which was that having the bible translated into the vernacular languages of the people was meant as a corrective or a check, or at least a check in a checks and balances on the clergy. Hmm. That the yeah, so it was the belief that other people could read this and say, well, hey, hold on, you know. Um, but the other thing was uh, alongside that wasn't just the Bible. This is the thing that a lot of the evangelicals miss out on. That it wasn't just the Bible that Luther was championing being translated to the vernacular of the people. It was also the liturgy, hmm. uh, the actual ritual worship. And the church was, and the, and the church resisted that too. So these are two things that go together. It, Luther wasn't just we got to get the Bible in language of the people. Like Luther was like, no, it needs to all be in the language of the people. Um, the Bible, you know, because what are we going to do in German liturgy, but then read from a Latin Bible? You know, like uh, you know, because right. it was it was all in the context of public worship. You know, not in the idea of like I can just go to the bookstore and pick up a Bible and read it, and now suddenly I have a church and 2000 followers because I had a lot of time to read the Bible, which I, I kid you not was once the criteria I heard for a pastor, hmm. actually the pastor of the journey church in West Palm beach said that his reasoning to be pastor was that he had had a career in business that afforded him a lot of time to read and study the Bible in his downtime. Hmm. <laughs> wow. So yeah. Um, but it's it's just yeah, so, so it's it's so fascinating to me because it's like you know I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to look at this from a uh, uh, materialist uh, dialectical uh, point of view and it and it's it's so funny it, it's you can see where it's like this is like this is the most moral thing to do you know you're giving scripture to the common person they finally have access to it. And that can be totally seen as like, this is like more freedom. It's very pro-democratic. But then you also, mm -hmm. you don't take into account like the effects and also you're sort of taking away the responsibility involved, right? Right. 
So well, and you're taking and you're also taking away nuance. I mean, yeah. one of the things that's that's really fascinating about reading the Bible and learning and learning a bit about the original languages in which they're written is the fact that like it's literature and so it's playing off of the conventions of language mm -hmm. uh, you know of its own language um i was blown away in seminary when i learned that the famous bit in john 3 where john where jesus is talking to nicodemus um cannot be accurately translated into english it's impossible because when jesus is talking to him about when he says like you know the wind blows you know, the wind, you know, the wind blows and we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but we know when it's here. And so it is of everyone born of the spirit, you know, all of that. Well, um, John has Jesus using the word pneuma, which in Greek means wind, breath, spirit. It means all of those things. Right. And so you can translate that any way you want. He could be talking about the wind. He could be talking about the spirit. But it seems that the usage of that is playing off of the fact that that word means all of those things at the same time. And so the passage in Greek is meant to imply some kind of plurality of meaning that requires right, an understanding of the language to sort of get. When you translate that into English, you now have to make editorial decisions because we have three different words for wind, breath, and spirit. So is Jesus talking about the breath? Is Jesus talking about wind? Is Jesus talking about the spirit? And so you make decisions. So, you know, inevitably what happens in that is somebody's editorial mind makes that decision and somebody else says, wait, 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 no, it could be done this way. And so now we have to do another translation to correct what we think is wrong in the other person's translation. And suddenly you have camps forming over yeah. which reading is the appropriate and correct reading. But all along, the thing was never meant to be concretely understood the way that we're trying to make it concretely understood in translation is actually meant to be more open and nuanced. Yeah. And I feel like if, if you're going to, and we've had this, we, we mentioned this briefly in the chat once, and I feel like it was going mm -hmm. to a really interesting place where it's like, if you're going to just freely distribute the scriptures amongst everybody right. in the world, then like you, you can't really have a rigid view of Christianity because People are, have different experiences, different feelings, different goals, different lives. They're, they're going to read it. They're all going to read it differently. So like you, you right. kind of well, have to also, take a sort of universalist approach to Christianity after that, right? Right. Well, I mean, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of Christianity to just say, like, here's a Bible, go read it. Yeah. Right. right. Because, yeah. right, this is, this is a thing about... <laughs> Right. This, this gets us into just the nature of the Bible, which, by the way, until the Reformation, the church never, as far as I know, never had any kind of like conciliar statement about the Bible. Like when they met for like the councils of the Nicene Creed or Chalcedon or whatever, they didn't talk about the Bible. There's a myth out there that they established the canon of the Council of Nicaea, but that is not true. In really? fact, the canon of the Bible, yeah. In fact, the canon of the Bible has never been officially established. Really? Yeah. So like the Nicene Creed wasn't the final word on like the, as, as everything being canonized? Like that's not... The Nicene Creed was... The, so the creed... No, I'm, I'm, the I'm not the creed. I'm sorry. I'm at the council. I'm at the council. Yeah, the council. Yeah, no. No, yeah. that's a common that's a common thing that's out there. But no, it, it it did not. As far as we know from like the the minutes and recordings and stuff that we have, they didn't really talk much about the Bible at Nicaea. Um, what actually got the what actually set the impetus on the church having a 
a canon list, you know, a canonized list of books yeah. was a heretic um, by the name of um, um, Muratorius, who um, created his own, basically was going around and saying like, his, his theology is like, God doesn't like the Jews. <laughs> so here's like, so Luke is the only gospel you should read because it was written by a Gentile. And he, he, he put like his own books together and the church was like, okay, okay. Clearly we have to step in and say, these are the books that sort of get the stamp of approval. Um, and that's the thing is, is that the whole idea of canonization isn't to say God spoke in this book, but not in this book. It's rather to say, these are the books that capture the essence of what we believe. Like these are the things that we're building off. This is, this is the cornerstone from which we're building on. So like, you know, in, in, in that regard, right, that becomes similar to like our understanding of canon in popular culture. Right. Like think about Star Wars. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, what becomes official and what becomes legends. Right. Like that's that's sort of how it is. Right. We have the Bible is the canon. Right. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff out there that counts as like legends. Right. Hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, like Gospel of Thomas, things like that. So like they're worth reading. They're beneficial. They give us insights, valid insights into the theology, beliefs and practices of the church. But they don't carry the same stamp. And it was actually a completely like shockingly mundane set of criteria for the church to decide this is basically like, okay, are a lot of people reading this book? Like, is this a book that's known to most of the churches? Okay. Then that book counts because huh. obviously like it's most people sort of, you know, it was sort of, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, attrition, right? Like a just sort of, you know, what, what things got distributed. If it was popular and distributed among the churches, they sort of took that as like grounds of like, okay, this carries a stamp of authority um, and also, but like they all, but then they also put it in, was it written by somebody who knew Jesus? Was it, does it go back to the time of Jesus or close to the time of Jesus? Right. So that's why like the Didache, which is uh, the teaching of the 12 apostles, why it never, it was one of those books. There's like a handful of books that like almost made it. And it's one of those ones that never got the stamp of canonicity in the wider church because most people believe it was written too late. But that being said, yeah. the Ethiopian church is a great example. They were cut off from the rest of the church for a really long time. And so there were a handful of books that they treated as scripture within their church. And then when they were sort of, when contact and, and open lines of communication and stuff were, re, were reestablished with the church of Ethiopia, you know, they had like the book of Enoch in their Bible and the church was like, okay, well, that's okay for you guys. You guys consider it scripture, so that's your scriptures. Right. So like the Ethiopian Bible has books that no one else has. That's, um, that's awesome. And, and the church is sort of like, that's cool. That's you, you, you do you, right? Like, <laughs> And, and on top of that, um, the canonical status of like the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation has been hotly contested. Really? Uh, Luther, Luther felt that Hebrews and Revelation, well, he thought that James, Hebrews, and Revelation have no business being in the Bible. James, that's interesting to me. James was the one who, James was the one who was like talking about like, my works will justify my faith. Right, and yeah. Mark Luther felt that that contradicted the idea of sola fide, the through faith alone are we right. saved. He felt that James, right. So one of the great one of the great quotes of Martin Luther. He's the dude is a quote machine, by the way. If you ever read his stuff, um, but he said, "The scriptures this is also good theology of the Bible statement. The scriptures are the manger in which the Christ child is laid, and in that manger is a lot of straw." <laughs> 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 
and that was his <laughs> that was his dismissal of James. That's really um, yeah. But like, so again, right? So like, this shows right that the what counts as the Bible has been debated up until you know the Reformation, and and there's never been an official universal church list. That's why the Catholic Church has the Apocrypha. We have the Apocrypha, right? But we treat the Apocrypha as sort of like a, it's sort of like the DVD bonus features of yeah. the Bible, um, you know. And and so, uh, you know, so it's just why you you find that. So already you could probably see why I threw my hands up, right? Like, no, I get it, I get it. <laughs> but I think if I can, if and and I and I get it because I I was there too, yeah. Right. I went to a church that was, I mean firebrand King James only to the fact, to the effect that when my church, my Baptist church growing up was calling a new pastor, the pulpit committee was 50, 50 split. And like, no one would budge on calling a pastor who was King James only. Hmm. And ultimately they got a guy who was just sort of like, I'll preach in the King James. It's fine. Um, and so they, they went with it, but that's, Right. So like I grew up in that environment, this idea that the King James translation, it's trustworthy because the Holy Spirit guided the translators to make an accurate translation, um, which is such a fascinating. And, and as an aside, that's happening with the pre 2011 NIV. I think like the original, like the 1978 NIV is treated as a like more authoritative status by some churches than the newer one because the newer one has gender inclusive language in it. Wow. Um, yeah, NIV was my was my translation. That was uh Yeah. That was my go to. It just seemed more chill. The NIV is responsible for um introducing the word homosexual. Yeah. To right. Paul's writings. That was um, a nine, which, what year was that? 78. 78. Yeah, the term homosexual, it was classified as a mental illness in some psychological uh, psychological dictionary in like 1890 something. And then it, that term was then used in the it was the first time in a Bible in the NIV. And so that that's a problem, right? right we talk yeah. about translation. That's a problem because that is decidedly not the word that Paul was using when he wrote Ephesians or whatever because that word didn't exist back right. then. It's an extremely editorial choice. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas the word that Paul actually uses is a Greek word called arsenkoitis, which is a combination of the word man and the word bed. And we have no idea what Paul meant by it because Paul coined the phrase. It's yeah. not used in any other Greek writings that we have other than Greek writings that are citing Paul's letters from the time. I heard someone say it refers so, to pedophilia. Well, that's actually I'll, that, that's a, that's an interesting thing because so some scholar was like we have all this controversy about how to translate this this arsenquitus word and then he realized like oh whoa we translated the Bible into like Spanish and French like a full century before we ever translated into German or English or whatever so he was like what were they doing when they translate like how did they translate it back then and so he found these old translations and sure enough. They use the term pedophilia to translate really? that, that, yeah, they use, or some, or pederasty or some, something to that effect. So, yeah, so the, the question then is, you know, you know, because the question is, what did Paul mean by this term, right? Um, and so that's where translation's great, because you get insight from how other people 
we're using, you know, their understanding of this term and this word, right? Because every word, right, language is kind of shockingly democratic. Yeah. And, you know, which is what we all sort of agree on. Um, and that's why, like, for me, when it comes to the Bible and, like, my own study and other things is I usually read through things through multiple translations because I don't know Hebrew and Greek. I trust that the scholars who translate these things, like I know enough to get myself in trouble, but I, the, but the, I trust the scholars to know their work. And so it's always kind of fun to look at different translations. So I sort of feel like by looking at different translations, you're sort of circling the truth, right? Which is ultimately what all language is, right? It's, you're, you know, you're never really getting to the truth of the object because the word is a signifier of the object. And so, right, like learning things, you know, learning the names for objects in different languages kind of gives you more insight into the truth of that object, but it's never going to be full, right? That's, that's a whole philosophy of language, Noam Chomsky kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Cool. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. How should, how, how do you think someone should uh, choose a translation or do you have a translation you think everyone should be reading? Is there one that you think that it's like you are going to be reading this or do you think people should just kind of like do their own thing? And if so, like how, how would, how would someone navigate that? I, is that a really big question? That I, you... <laughs> it's a pretty big question, but I can, I think I can answer it pretty simply. I don't, okay. I mean, it, it would be great for me to just say like one or the other, right? Uh, whatever yeah. translation or use this translation. But the reality is, is some translations are better than others. Mm -hmm. um, because some translations have uh, ideological agenda behind them, right? right? Like, I'm just just straight up, I'm just not going to trust a Baptist translation of the Bible. Like because... anyone from Zondervan, right? Like... <laughs> Pretty much. Well, yeah. Zondervan, Zondervan on, in particular is one because they, they treat the Bible as a money-making endeavor, which really bothers me. I mean, you know, you got to pay your scholars, but come on, guys. I mean, the, the NIV is not terrible. I'm not a huge fan of it, um, you know, but it's not terrible. Like in the Episcopal Church, we sort of have a standard translation, which is the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is used in the Roman Catholic Church and by Lutherans and others. And so we use that mostly because everybody else is kind of using it. And if you're going to buy like pre-bound lectionary books or gospel books or something, it's in that translation. And so it's just de facto the translation of the church, even though the Episcopal church has a list of 11 approved translations for use in public worship or like, I think maybe it's 12 now. So I would say like, if you're, you know, the NRSV, you can't really go wrong with it. It's a good translation that um, includes, if you find with the Apocrypha, you get the Apocrypha, which I think is worth having. Um, but the Bible that I've been gravitating to lately is a newer translation that was completed in, I think, 2012 called the Common English Bible. Um, and what I like about the Common English Bible is that it served to satisfy a need presented by Eugene Peterson's The Message Paraphrase. So um, should I take a brief detour into the difference between translation and paraphrase? Go for it, dude, because I, I do want to All mention right. the message eventually, and I think that does kind of ride that distinction. Yeah. So um, so there's basically three types of translation. There's um, formal equivalent, dynamic equivalence, and paraphrase. So formal equivalence is you are trying to translate words as accurately as possible across languages, right? So um, 
So like if there's a, you know, like the Greek, you know, the, like the, was the Latin word for boat is nave or whatever. So like you use the English word boat because they're describing the same thing. Um, formal or that dynamic equivalence is trying to get meaning. So the link, the words might not be direct equal translations, but you're trying to get to the meaning of those words that the Greek or Hebrew is trying to signify. Um, and, you know, various translations will sometimes combine both approaches depending on what they're trying to do. Paraphrase is like sort of ultra dynamic equivalence where you're taking the ideas, but not only are you trying to like translate the ideas into English, but you're also sort of trying to translate the ideas into a contemporary idiom. Okay. So the, the most, the, the first sort of popular Bible paraphrase was the living Bible um, that was released in like 72 or something, mm-hmm. um, which caused a bunch of controversy when it came out. But it was it was done in such a way that the words were were rendered in, in such a way that a 12 year old kid could pick it up and read it. That was I sort think of that, the, the approach that was concurrent with the popular popularization of Christian bookstores. Right. Because I think we, we talked about that yes. in our Christian bookstore episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the hippies love the living Bible. They love to yeah. hand that out to people, you know, whatever. Um, then Eugene Peterson came along, um, who's a he's a he's a scholar of ancient languages. He's you know so he and a pastor. He's not just well he's dead now, but he's not you know he wasn't just like Joe Blow learned learned Hebrew and Greek on the internet and decided to make his own translation. Like he 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 knew he knew his stuff, um, but he created a message as a paraphrase to put the Bible in a very very like sort of conversational readable. Yeah. You know, he italicized his words to emphasize their meaning rather than using other, you know, pronouns and stuff and adverbs to kind of get it right. Okay. So um, it's it's very interesting, but it's not always the most accurate thing um, to use it as basically someone injecting a, a, a Bible commentary into a translation. Like that's a good way to sort of look at the uh, to look at the message. I used um, to use it just like just out of curiosity. I would just do it. like if I if I had, if I read like a good verse, like I wonder what the message says about it. And I'd always laugh. It's like that's just that's not what I got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have the I have I, I have a copy of the message. I, I use it. Yeah. The the thing that Peterson said though, like his approach to the message was that he wanted it to be something that like somebody who say who's never read a Bible before could pick up a Bible and kind of read it and get right. you know sort of a surface level idea of what's going on. Yeah. He also meant it for people who had grown up with the Bible and read the Bible so much in their lives that it had become stale. So it sort of shake them out of their like complacency to read it. But he was pretty emphatic that he never meant for the message to be used in church services. Okay. It was meant to be like, uh, you know, a sort of complement to a more formal translation of the Bible. But somewhere along the way, people missed that memo. So it's um, more, a lot it's, of churches like, started using... It's like talking to somebody about what you just read. You know, and it's like it's almost like you can bounce it off of, off of the trends, like of someone. Yeah. Like it's like having a friend who read it, you know. Yeah. Well, the one thing about the message is the message does not really work well for public reading of scripture. It's much yeah. more for like you're sitting there and reading it yourself. But we have to remember the Bible was written to be publicly read. It was not written from the perspective of somebody having their own private little bound version of it and reading it on their own. Right? They're sitting in an auditorium listening to people reading it out loud. Okay. So the 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 Common English Bible comes along to sort of scratch the itch and create something sort of in between like the NRSV and the message. Let's have like an an intensely scholarly, you know, translation of the Bible that is 
in common English that can be read from lecterns in churches and used in worship. That was the approach with with the Common English Bible. And I think it does a really good job with it. Um, it also does one thing that, um, it attempts to do something that not too many Bibles do, which is introduce concepts and terms to the Bible that hopefully could get into regular usage. Like for instance, one of the common things that it does is that instead of saying son of man, it uses the human one as a phrase. Mm -hmm. And it gives a whole rationale in the notes about why it does that, you know, not only just out of gender inclusion, but that it conveys more the mystical thing of what's being meant by the original Hebrew and Greek phrase there. Um, there the most controversial bit in that, though, is in 1 John 3, 16, I think, where it says that God's DNA lives in us. Um, you know, that was one of those, when I first read it, I was like, oh, gosh, really? <laughs> but I looked up and the Greek word there is the, the word Bitcoins. sperma. Well, it's the word sperma, okay. which most other translations translated as seed. And I thought, actually, this kind of works, right? So, and it's the only instance where they translate sperma as DNA. So it kind of, you know, and so it, you know, it gives sort of a shocking interpretation of the idea of like, what does it mean to have like sort of God's DNA in us by virtue of our baptized life, right? So it's like, so it's kind of an interesting thing that the Common English Bible is trying to do in, in, a, in a few places. Like, they, that's not like the overwhelming thing, just a couple of things where it does it. Um, and I like it. I will say though that it 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 it's guilty of what a lot of modern like really contemporary translations are doing, which is um, their hearts in the right place, trying to do gender inclusive translations. So instead of saying like, you know, the brothers, it says brothers and sisters, like when addressing the churches. Mm -hmm. um, instead of saying sons, in a lot of places, they'll say children. Um, but unfortunately, there's nuance and sometimes where Paul is or someone is, in, is is actually really, really trying to use the gender um, yeah, to communicate that. something. Yeah. And you miss it. And actually, I think because um, we just did this in my study, I did a church study on the book of Galatians and like the New Revised Standard Version and the Common English Bible do this. And in a way, actually misses Paul being really radical because he's talking about in this passage, I think it's Galatians three, he's talking about, um, it's where we get the famous passage in Christ. There is no, um, there is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Greek. Um, for we all, all, all are under the same Lord or whatever. Um, are the angels Paul, referred to as they, they are not. That's that non-binary erasure, dude. <laughs> That's an interesting that. conversation, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, so the, um, but in that situation, Paul then goes on to talk about Abraham's son. Okay. And we're basically, we are all sons of Abraham is the Paul is a point that Paul is making. Well, the, 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 the translations say we're all children of Abraham, which, okay, fine. But the radical implication of son in this is that the son is fitting into an economic reality of the ancient world, which is a son is the one who inherits. And so Paul is actually making the much more scandalous thing is that regardless if we are Jew or Greek, slaves or free people, or men or women, we are all sons, right? So that's there's really, some gender bending type stuff going on there. It's, that's it's, way more interesting. Yeah, you, you have to like, like the word problematizing was just invented like five years ago, right? <laughs> Where like you make something problematic. It's like you kind of have to, you have to problematize the context in order for it to make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to go right. with the very sort of misogynistic idea that women do not inherit anything, right? <laughs> right, 
You have right, to use to make that. the scandalous claim that women yeah. are actually inheriting. They are treated as sons, right? right? Because it's it's not about the gender of the son. It's about the economic status of son. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, so there's a few things, but that's that's that. But again, that's the sort of stuff that you're going to come up with all the time when you do the work of translation, because you know the the, the questions of what we're trying to do in translation is is always there. Robert Alter, who did um, a really great tra English translation of the Hebrew Bible, he actually sings the King James Bible's praises. He says that um, the King James, even though it's not a more accurate translation in terms of like literalness, it preserves the poetry of the Hebrew language better than a lot of other translations. And in his intro to the Bible, he writes this, he writes this great um, essay called um, the, the, the Heresy of Interpretation. Um, and he says that one of the problems that we have in our translation work is that we try to translate away meaning, right? Like we don't let poetry, like the poetry of language stand front and center. Mm -hmm. um, like for instance, the, 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 the example he uses is, you know, when God drags Abraham out to look, you know, to say like, look at the stars, you know, you're going to, you know, I'm going to make you a father, you know, as numerous as the stars. And then he also says, you know, it's going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Well, he points out both of those images, right? Like, okay, first of all, he doesn't say this. This is my interjection. If God is going to tell Abraham that he's going to be, he's going to be a father of a lot of people and he's going to use sand as the image of like where grains indicate numbers, then why would God not just say, look at the desert you're currently living in, right? Why does he yeah. say seashore? Well, what's at the seashore? Sea foam, right? What is also in, like when God says, look up at the stars, right? We have to remember when Abraham is looking at the stars, this is before massive light pollution, right? So Abraham is actually looking at the Milky Way. Yeah. And so Robert Alter makes the case that and then the thing is, is that what God says is that your seed will be basically as effusive as these things. And what Robert Alter thinks is that he's not talking so much about like comparing like stars to like number of kids. What he's basically saying is your ejaculate is going to be so potent. It'll be <laughs> like the stars you see in the sky or the foam on the sea. Wow. Right. And he's and it's playing off of this sort of visceral image that modern like in our modern world, we're very uncomfortable with. Yeah. But it shows like the Hebrew, the, the writers of the Hebrew Bible were not as uncomfortable. They were not such... Puritans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like so when we when we're like, oh, you're going to have as many children as there are stars in the sky like that misses an actually pretty shocking poetic image. Right. That we may look at as like, oh, that's gross. Like, we don't think about that in church. Right. But that's right. right. But it gives you insight into how the ancient world thought and imagined things. Mm -hmm. And also tells it gives a little insight into what we've lost in our world by the fact that when we look at the stars, we don't see the same thing Abraham saw. Yeah, it's it's very indigenous in a way. Right. It's, it's very. Yeah. Poetic kind of connection to nature and whatnot. So to answer, so to give the short version of your question, yeah. you know, is there a, you know, is there a translation? I mean, I can give you recommendations, right? You know, yeah. It depends on what you, you know, you try to get as close to the, you want to try to get as close to the original language as possible. New American Standard Bible, that'll do it for you. Um, okay. If you want something that's really well researched and scholarly, but in a very conversational, easy to read language, Common English Bible. Um, you really can't, I really, um, you can't go wrong. Okay, it. are these available um, in the Indiana Jones Grail Diary sized books? 
I think the Common English Bible is, though Protestant conspiracy, so the, the Common English Bible is sort of, it was, it was, the work was done by a really ecumenical group of Christian, of scholars. Like it's a very like pan-Christian Bible translation. Yeah. Um, but it's largely published by Methodists. Hmm. Like they actually did like the, they, they did the publishing work on it, right? This is the and, Common English Bible you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. So the only way that you can get the, the study Bible version of it with the Apocrypha in it is you can only get it in large hardbound format. Really? Yeah, that's cumbersome. <laughs> this is it. But really? I cut the cover off of it because I can't stand hardbound Bibles. I cut <laughs> the cover off of it and made my own cover out of duct tape. That's that's really funny. That's like um, that flies in the mean, face of of evangelical marketing with the Bible cases and stuff, right? Like probably wouldn't yeah. fit in a Bible case. Yeah. <laughs> but they, but you can get the common English, but without the study Bible materials in it, okay. you know, with the Apocrypha or without the Apocrypha, and a whole variety. Yeah, they have the Indiana Jones diary size one. Nice, but the, the, the cool you, like embossing. Yeah, you said the other one was it was was it New American Standard. Yeah, the New American Standard you can get anywhere. Yeah, that's um, cool. so many versions, um, and that's again, it's 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 really close to the original languages, um, and then you want a good just sort of. You know, journey middle of the road journeyman translation, uh, the new revised standard version because it's used by like everybody. Um, That's cool. By most, well, outside of the evangelical world, um, if you if you're evangelical, um, the New King James is fine. I went to a, a number of years ago, my, my old days. Uh, I went to the uh, I think it was the Wycliffe Museum in Florida. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wycliffe Bible translators. Yeah, there's a. It was pretty cool because they had a bunch of different translations. Like their whole thing is just like translating the Bible in like every language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I went there with my my missions, uh, the the MPTs, missions planning team, and uh, we were all fascinated by the uh, Hawaiian translation of the Bible, which is all in. Wait. This, in, in pigeon. Are you talking right? about the pigeon? Are you talking the yeah. pigeon translation? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was, yeah, right I on. thought that was super cool. Referring to Roman soldiers as uh, the army guys. The army guys. Yeah, you can actually get the new, you can read the New Testament in Pigeon on BibleGateway.com. Really? That's one of their nice. translations when you when you scroll around. Yeah, they don't have the actual Olelo translation on there. It's the proper Hawaiian language. I have I have the Olelo Bible, Sweet. the New Testament at least. But um, yeah, I, I, I keep wanting to buy the Pigeon one. Yeah. But it's I can get most of it off of the uh, off of Bible Gateway. So right, yeah, it's so yeah. funny like having Jesus be like, "Yo, you guys." <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, we loved. It. I I wanted a copy of it so bad, um, because I just thought it was so unique and cool. Because I I didn't know like that was first of all, it was my sort of introduction to a different language. I had no I had no idea about, um, and also to yeah. say to see that a Bible was translated like that was like so like that was kind of touching to me, you know. I can't remember if it was them or Moody put out a video that I watched when I was in Baptist Bible College for a little while that created a mild scandal for some people because they were talking about translating the Bible into one of the languages of Papua, Papua New Guinea. And um, in this particular tribe, because, you know, they have like a thousand languages right. there. Um, and uh, the one of the languages, the, the, the people did not have, they didn't have a word for dust. Mm-hmm. They live in a very like humid climate where dust isn't a thing 
And so they didn't have a word for dust. And so they were talking about Genesis, you know, God creating Adam out of the dust of the ground. How do they translate this? What do they do? Right. They have a word for soil. So do we use the word soil? Is soil, you know, equivalent to dust? Does that change the meaning of the text to say soil rather than dust? All this kind of thing. I mean, they ultimately went with soil because that was the word they had. But I remember like people in you know my class and stuff being sort of like flabbergasted, like, you know, so because then it comes to the issue of like, do we have to introduce, is it necessary to introduce the concept of dust to a people in order to explain this thing? Hmm. Right. And so like strict literalism would say, no, you have to introduce the concept of dust. Hmm. Right. But more figurative would say, no, you can, you know, it's not that literal, right? Like God, it basically, God made Adam out of the stuff in the ground, right. And soil, you know, does add an interesting element of like God, you know, like Adam growing out of the soil. Right. Let me ask you at PBA. Yeah. Were there like camps regarding Bible? You've hinted at, you saw people like sort of like being like, you know, staking the ground, their translations better than someone else's translation. Like where did you, because I've sort of picked that out based off of internet stuff that like hardcore Calvinists are all about like the new American standard or something like there. Did you, did you experience that kind of thing? And like, what were those translations if you recall? And like, what um, was that like? What were those conversations? I mean, were they just like, like how, how dismissive were they of other translations? At PBA, I remember thinking to myself, I have this one translation. I'm just going to stick with it. Cause I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't care. And if someone had beef, I'll just listen to them. I'll hear them out and be like, you're right, whatever. Um, I don't remember there being much contention at PBA. I think it's because I just didn't care. I was too busy. Um, okay. But, like, th- I think there were. Like, I mean, there was a growing contingent of Calvinists at PBA. Um, yeah, there were. That was, like, I mean, it, it was actually really scary how it was happening. Yeah. Um, actually, now that, now that we're talking about it, it's kind of funny that I've, I'm asking you this. I was in the stinking school of ministry. I was a biblical studies major. I should actually know that. Yeah, well, but what's funny question. about it is that even though I was – that's true about you, but also I was on the missions planning team. You think it would come up more, right? right. It really didn't. Um, I think okay. people just had their way of doing it. They just did it. Um, but, like, I do know that after I had left that same team, there were, like, a few people who started going to this very hardcore reform – theology church and they started to like really try to like a weird kind of mutiny happened in the and the missions planning team with these new calvinists that had come that had become calvinists and were turning other people into calvinists and this is around the time piper had released his esv translation right the english standard version which became very popular amongst these new reformed theology kids at the time and I think that was sort of becoming like, no, we got to use this one, the, the Piper Bible. <laughs> um, I, I hope no one from my team is listening to this, but I kind of hope they are because, you know, I would love to hear from you. I haven't heard from you in a while, buddies. Um, <laughs> but um, and, and that then yeah. that was the sort of like the undoing of, of myself, you know, of uh, I, the ESV was my last translation. And then, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get into that because we've already talked about it. But I don't remember there being that many camps. Do you remember being in any of those? I, I mean, I went through a period of time because I was I was rebelling. So my, my one of my ways of rebelling at my church growing up was to uh, issue the entire 
uh, King James thing, and mm-hmm. I got a New American Standard Bible yeah. for Christmas one year, and then that, that was like my Bible. Like I was just like a I was a New American Standard guy, and I felt very you know elevated to everybody because I was reading this you know more accurate translation or whatever, and uh, and I would you know and I. I do remember having conversations with one of the guys who was on the pulpit committee for the new pastor. And he was telling me, cause he was just like, dude, like, do you have anything that can help us? In yeah. fact, I lost my King James Bible. My, my, the King James Bible was given to me as a gift when I was like 14 years old. Um, cause I, it had, uh, in the study Bible, um, it was a Thompson chain reference study Bible and the materials in the back had a great, it was the King James version. So the guy was like, if I use King James, version bible to make my argument they'll listen um but it had like a it had like a whole like graph showing how the king james bible was like filtered through layers of translation rather than the newer bibles which use you know the original language but um so this, so but this guy was saying because i was like well, what, what about the new king james and he was like let me show you and he opened up a new king james bible and it had a celtic knot you know the trinitarian celtic knot yeah. Right. That's like part of the like the official symbol of the New King James Bible. Mm-hmm. He goes, he goes, they say that's the mark of the beast. <laughs> and I'm like, well, for real? He's like, yeah. He says they, they see that as like three sixes sort of interlined like somehow <laughs> oh, together. And I got to be honest, that's I, a more aesthetically pleasing six, six, six. And my I mean, I put that on my forehead, but yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> so so I was like. I was like, you, you know, that's a symbol of the Trinity, right? He's like, they don't care. So, um, so like, I, so I grew up with that, you know, kind of thing. But I, I feel like I remember some of the Calvinists in the biblical studies program being really into the New American Standard because of its closeness okay. to the literal translation. And like, I feel like there's a certain beardy type, uh, you know, pipe smoking wannabe C.S. Lewis that's all about the New American Standard. Um, was that C.S. Lewis's translation? Bit. The New American no. Standard? No. No, no. Um, I don't know. He would have just used the King James because that was just the, the that makes standard sense, translation yeah. at the time. Or maybe the Jerusalem Bible. The Jerusalem Bible, by the way, everybody, not the New Jerusalem Bible, but the original Jerusalem Bible is a Catholic translation, had the tra- the book of Jonah in it was translated by none other than J.R.R. Tolkien, oh, nice. which is kind of neat. But uh, anyway... What I do remember more, though, from my college-ish years was them being like, there being a really, really hardcore group of people that were all about the John MacArthur Study Bible, which could be found in a variety of translations, but specifically John MacArthur Study Notes of the Bible. People were like cult-like devotion to that thing when I was... Wretch every every time I hear that name now. (laughs) We should do an episode about... We've, We've done... Big, we've we've done we've done uh, call me Big Piper. Now we need to do like, I, I, I mean Johnny Mac tonight. I have no nice things to say about that man. Like that guy, yeah, he's a jerk. He's he is evil. He's straight up evil. Like, oh, he he's he's gonna he's gonna get it in the afterlife, dude. Like, I don't, I don't want to be him. You know, I <laughs> I, I hope he gets the orthodox. Christian afterlife, you know? Yeah. He just goes insane in in the face of God. Like, I hope, I hope that's waiting for him. (laughs) I do not like that man. We'll we'll talk uh, about him one day. Yeah, we will. So the, the, um, our listeners are very intrigued now. Um, but yeah, so the, I mean, like I said, I grew up with the King the hardcore King James group. I have, you know, again, I have learned a bit about, 
the reaction to the 2011 version of the NIV, which I think is hilarious. Um, Cause I just love the idea that there's somebody out there that's like, I believe only in the 1978 new international version of the Bible divinely inspired when like the NIV was treated by my church as like borderline devilish. Really? That's funny. It wasn't King James. Yeah. Um, you know, and what was uh, was it the NIV? NIV no, it's the revised. The revised it's... standard version is the one that was accused of communism. Was it really? Yeah. That's so funny. You know, it's just so interesting because, like, that is probably yeah. The yeah McCarthy McCarthy got into they they had McCarthy's people look into the revised standard version to consider if the translators were communists and whether that's a commie Bible. They tried to blacklist the RSV. Jeez. What about Martin Luther King? Like, which I've been trying to f- figure out what translation his Bible is, even though it's like I can I can do a Google search and I can find it like, oh, it's for sale. It's it's on auction. These kids are trying to sell it or whatever. Uh, but no one tell no one says what what translation it is. I'm really curious to know I what, which one he used. I would assume because he was Baptist minister that it's the King James. Really. Uh, or the author the authorized version as it's sometimes known. But yeah. Okay. All right. I just think that would be interesting. To, I mean, to, just to know that. But I also get the sense that King probably read from a few different translations. I mean, he seemed to. Yeah, I mean, he was a scholar. He seemed so to like, know his stuff. Yeah. It seems like if if you really want to get into the Bible and Scripture and re- like really want to like take a scholarly look, you kind of have to use more than one translation, right? Yeah, I mean, that's why I have a shelf of them back here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I collect them. Like, yeah, people bring. I actually left a bunch of Bibles. So, if someone was that. just like, "This is the definitive translation. We're using this one and no other one," you would say, "Like, watch out. Okay, just be careful with that guy." Would you? Would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because first of all, here's my here's the thing. Oh, here here's a good story. So, you know, I used to work at a Christian bookstore. We got a call one day from somebody looking for <laughs> the King James Bible in Spanish. The King James um, Spanish authorized. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. But that's the thing is, right? Like, there's other languages out there, guys. And was it, I actually, when I, I went to seminary with a guy, he dated a girl. He broke up with her when he found out that she believed that the Bible was originally written in English and then translated <laughs> later into Hebrew and Greek. Oh, come on. It's like <laughs> people aren't even trying. <laughs> um. Yeah. And I mean, getting back to the whole Martin Luther conversation that we talked about earlier, the funny thing is, is that at the time, the Bible being used by the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin Church was the Vulgate, which is a translation in Latin. Mm-hmm. Because prior to that, right, is the Hebrew and Greek, or actually the Greek Bible, because the Septuagint which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was being used pretty widely back then. And then all the New Testament Bibles were written in Greek. So like, and then on top of that, the Orthodox world had no problem with vernacular translations of the Bible. There, you know, yeah. it, was in, it was in, you know, Gies, the um, liturgical language of the, of the Ethiopians. Um, the Syrian church uses Armenian, I mean, I'm sorry, Aramaic. The Armenian church obviously has their translation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really just a Western problem, which really means it was imperialism. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like what, what we're getting at is if we're, if we're talking to somebody who is sort of lost or they're trying to get into the Bible, you would probably tell them, you know, don't really sweat the translation. 
Don't right. be too, you don't have to be weary of the translation. Be weary of who like uses it, right? Like how, how it's being used. Yeah. If you want to get into the Bible, like explore other options, just, you know, mm-hmm. test it, test oh. them against each other and, and just. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely that. And I would also say something that's very necessary is don't read the Bible in isolation. Okay. So, cause it was never meant to be that it was never meant to be something we just handed to people. Right. It's, you know, this is, this is the thing about the Bible. I meant to say this way in the beginning is that the Bible is the product of the church. Right. Like we created, you know I mean? We, we wrote it, we edited it, we compiled it and we put it forward. And so it is, it is, it is our product, right? Like, the Bible did not form us. We formed the Bible, right? Now, the stories and the scriptures and stuff aren't form us spiritually, all that kind of thing. But the the the, the point being is that it was never it's it's a traditioned document, which means that it's to be to be properly grasped is to be read in a particular context, right? Because yeah, you can pick up the thing. I mean, if you read Revelation, I mean, God, I can't imagine somebody who's like in their hotel room. And they're just like, like I'm going to read the Bible. Oh, I've heard Revelation. And they pick it up and they read it. And the first thing that they read is the book of Revelation. I mean, without without some kind of understanding of, like, the poetry and the tropes and the traditions around it, like, that book is nonsense. You can come up to all – I mean, you can become Charles Manson. <laughs> well, um, and, and we talked know. about last episode, we had a little tangent about Job and how, right. like, weird and complex that story is. I mean, you can't just, like, right. read it and walk away with a single message, right? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, so to really, you know, and that's why it's funny when I see people on the internet dismiss the Bible because it's a little bit like, well, yeah, I mean, if you read it that way, it's totally easy to dismiss it, right? Because it, you're treating it like it's any other, you know, you're reading it for like scholarly analysis, not reading it as a document of faith, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so, it, it, you know, so how you approach it changes things. And I know some people would say like from a, from a, you know, reason standpoint, right? Like, oh, you know, that means that you, you only properly understand when you already believe it buy into it but kinda um but the thing is is that (laughs) yeah um right because like i can't pick up a quran and read it right like without really sitting down with a group of muslims and and hearing right like that's just kind of how it goes and so that's why i'd say if somebody's interested in 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 exploring the bible for the first time yeah translation is not as big a deal as we might make it out to be you're gonna you know common English Bible something that you're going to understand it a lot better than if you pick up the King James. Yeah. Um, but I would say like, if you, if you can join a Bible study, great. If you're unaware, if you're so wary about that, there's plenty of things on YouTube that you can find of watching, you know, Bible studies and things like that. Like Shoot, your channel. I, my channel. Right. Like I, yeah. I, I went, you know, if you, if you want to read Romans and Galatians, go to St. Mary's Episcopal church in Honolulu and you'll find, my smiling face talking about the books of, of Romans and Galatians and, you, you know, give you some insight into what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's important that you read it, you know, whether or not you're going to come away believing in what is inside the Bible or whatever is, you know, some, you know, secondary, I guess, I mean, I want you to, but right. Like the point is, is that if you are going to read it, it's helpful to have some kind of exposure to, how it's read because the bible is a library of books right it's not it's not doomed yeah. you know it's 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 not a it's cohesive letters. narrative it's a, 
yeah, it's letters, it's, you know, histories, political, polemical histories, it's mythology, it's, you know, sermons, it's poetry, it's a whole bunch of different genre. Yeah, and, and, and some things in the Bible are not accurate. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not necessarily literally true, but they are still truth, um, you know, even when they're inaccurate. And I, so I just want to lay that out there for some people just to kind of give them something because... You know, we tend to popularly tend to treat Christians as though like, oh, we got to clutch our Bible and everything I need to know ever is in this. Right. It's basic instructions before leaving Earth. I hate that acronym. You know, <laughs> and it's and it's like, no, like, the, it's like I've said I think I've said this a few times on this podcast and I say it all the time in Bible study stuff with people is one of the worst things we've done is to make the Bible boring. Yeah, it's not boring. Right, it, you can make it boring, obviously, because plenty of churches have. John MacArthur has made the Bible boring, um, um, but you know, but when you think about the fact that, like, you know, God's telling Abraham he's going to have ejaculate like the, like the Milky Way. <laughs> right. That's an interesting book, man. <laughs> yeah, hey, we got these five-headed uh, creatures flying around shooting fireballs at each other. You know. Yeah. <laughs> the talking donkey in there. <laughs> we got to talk about the talking donkey. Um, where did I hear? I don't know. This is like a, maybe it was like an enchantment or something. Something about like, I feel like there's like a, a urban myth. Let's say urban myth, but like a, a myth that like Shakespeare helped translate the King James version or something. Yeah. There's, there's a thing out there that Shakespeare helped with the poetry of Psalms. Okay. Um, I don't know how accurate that is. I need to look into that. I probably should have reached out to you all those years ago. I had that sort of weird moment. And then I went to go literally the day of where I just like, I was like, I threw my hands up. I was like, I'm just so sick of this. I went to go see the movie Book of Eli. Oh. And that was kind of like, I don't know. In a way, it sort of kind of affirmed like what I was going through. And that not only was I like, someone was telling me, yeah, you're kind of right about this. But also, like, it's okay. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. People have been struggling with this for ages, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but uh, also, Book of Eli, good movie. Very good movie. I haven't watched it in a very long time. Cool, cool film. Um, but I don't know. We'll, I mean, how would, you, how would you have spoken to me back then? I was like, Chuck, I'm giving up on this. What, what year was it? It was like 2008. 2009 so okay so yeah i'm trying to think if i then i was in seminary yeah um i was in a particularly insufferable part of my of my academic career i think (laughs) um i i don't know i think i would like to think that i would give you similar advice to what i've given here which is don't is that you know don't let the jerks get you down right like you know, we can, we can turn the Bible into anything. Um, there's always going to be debates. There's always going to be debates and that, you know, it's, um, you know, I, and I mean, you know, I would have told you too. I mean, I came through, I came through some of this in my own life with, you know, people staking their, their claims on things and telling you, you got to do this out of the other. Cause the thing that really got you was the whole Calvinist thing. Yeah. You know? Like, it, um, it, I just, it, it, like, I had reached the peak where I was like, nothing is actually literal. And if it can't be literal, then the whole thing just, like, falls apart, right? 
Mm, I see. It was I like, it, and actually Rob Bell illustrates this point very interestingly in one of his books. I think it was Velvet Elvis, where he talks about is your faith like a brick wall or is it like a trampoline spring? Mm. Where it's like if you take out a brick from the brick wall, the whole thing crumbles. Rather than a, a spring, you can just kind of go left, you can go right, you can go up and down, you can go all over the place. And sort of the my faith was at the time was like was like that brick wall. You took out a brick, the whole thing crumbles. In my my case, if there's no literal translation to the Bible, then it's then it's all bull crap. That's interesting. Yeah. So in um, Body Piercing Saved My Life, this book about Christian rock, um, they tell uh, there's this music conference thing that a lot of Christian musicians go to at some Calvinist college, and David Bazan of Page of the Lion is there. And he's always just a wealth of information and just sort of an interesting figure when they write about him. And he makes a comment to the kids that says, you know, basically challenges them on their literalism with the Bible. And he says, you know, scholars, historians and scholars are pretty evenly split on whether or not King David even existed. Hmm. And, and, um, and he said, so like, what does so what does that do to your faith that king david might not have existed right and one of those kids kind of makes that comment about like well either it's all true or none of it's true mm -hmm. and he's just sort of like well is it you know i and so i think that that's you know and i've wrestled with that question a lot and especially the tail end of college I, I i wrestled with that a lot um and i tried to fight against that like oh, no, no, no. but so 2008 me, 2009 me, maybe in a better place to answer it than say 2007 me. <laughs> yeah. But I, um, but, but I mean, to sort of address it now, um, I'm quite comfortable with the fact that like the Bible is not meant to be a literally, like the, the truth is not, truth is not contingent on fact. And I know that's a dangerous thing to say in our current world mm -hmm. because we're living in a world with alternative facts. Yeah. But there's not alternative truth. It's why I don't like the phrase when people say things like, oh, live your truth. No, there is no your truth. There is truth, right? Like I'm a, I, I'm a philosopher, right? I, you know, the, 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 the defense and knowledge of truth is a big part of what I, of what I spend a lot of my time doing in my head. Um, and truth, like I said, again, is, you know, facts testify to truth, but, you know, even, even lack of factuality reveals the truth, right? right? That's one of the, that's why I think one of the great landmark, one of the great landmark philosophical essays is on bullshit, right? <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, bullshit is the biggest enemy of the truth because a lie needs the truth to work. Um, bullshit doesn't care one way or the other. And I think we're seeing the outgrowth of that in our current world. Right. Uh, but, um, yeah. So like in terms of the Bible, right? Like there is literal truth in it, but there is also edited truth or edited or there, there is there, but there is literal fact. There's also edited fact. There is also very troubling things in it, right? Mm -hmm. The book of Joshua is basically God's endorsement of genocide. Right. Um, you know, so how do we how do we deal with that? And the thing that really got me was I think was learning what Carl Bart called what Carl Carl Bart's approach, um, which is that um, the Bible is not the word of God. It contains the word of God or in the word of God. You can find the word of God in the Bible, meaning that 
you know, this kind of alluding to what Luther and what the quote from Luther that I mentioned earlier, that Christ is the, you know, the Bible is the manger in which the Christ child is laid, mm-hmm. right? Like it test the Bible testifies outside itself. And as Christians, we read the Bible through, we interpret it and understand it all through the person of Jesus and what Jesus reveals. And so we can look at the book of Joshua and we can say it reflects a history and an understanding of God that was that was held at its time. Was it an accurate understanding of God? That's up for debate. Right. But does it diminish the sort of God that Jesus reveals? No, because it allow it exposes, you know, it exposes, you know, our understanding of God a bit. And it doesn't necessarily have to put, you know, we don't have to do what the Gnostics did, where we say that there was an evil God that the Jews worshipped and that Jesus brought the true God. Right. You don't have to make that kind of that kind of eruption, eruption. I urge. <laughs> yeah, we just acknowledge the fact that humans have complicated relationships with God, and that the Old Testament is meant to provide a historical and literary framework that would result in to help us to help us make the person of Jesus comprehensible right. in his time. Um, it's like C.S. Lewis said. Um, C.S. Lewis said that for him, why he came to Christian faith from his atheism because he realized Christianity was a myth that became true. And so he looked, he was able to look at the Old Testament as it's mythology. It records a mythology. And it might not be, you know, there's some history in there, but there's some fiction, there's some things, you know, in there. But that ultimately what matters is that God became human in the person of Jesus. And so therefore the myth became real. Um, and, and I think that was probably maybe one of the most transformative thoughts and ideas that I ever had Yeah. for my, to my understanding of it all. Um, and so like, like I can, like, I, I, I actually touched a nerve with some people in, in, in recently by, um, in my congregation actually, by mentioning that the book of Ruth is probably fiction. Oh, people have been saying that for years. That's strange. People would react that way. Cause that's like, a yeah. Big thing amongst the biblical scholars it's always been up for debate yeah and that ruth is you know was there an actual woman named ruth and was she really married to boaz and was she really the stepdaughter or the daughter-in-law to naomi and all that like yeah some of the broad strokes of the story may be true but the actual like information in there is fiction right. but as like i said in a sermon when i preach about it i said but it's the sort of fiction or it's it's the sort of it, it communicates the kind the sort of truth that only fiction can communicate Right. You know, like yeah. Lord of the Rings is fiction, but there's truth in the Lord of the Rings, yeah. um, you know. And so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, a more a more nuanced and sober approach to the Bible is OK. Right. You know, I mean, I was blown away to learn about how recently the thing was written. Yeah. And it's like. The holes that are there they don't necessarily have to be filled right like right sometimes it's okay to, for things to just be like i don't know <laughs> like i feel like that's something that's missing from like a from like a, a modern day approach to religion especially something like christianity because it's like what you said what slavoj zizek said that like this isn't faith this is certainty and it's like two different mm-hmm. completely different things and what's really interesting because I'm, I'm trying to learn about dialectics and I'm still not quite grasping it but like a, a really interesting way someone put it was talking about religion which is that like you know what came first the religion as in like what you believe 
or the ideas they espouse. It's like, so like, did ideas create religion or did religion create ideas? And what a German philosopher once said, using dialectics, is that actually that's not the way to look at it. The way is, is that they are informing each other. Yep. They are like a, sort of in a constant, infinite grapple with one another that keeps going backwards and backwards and backwards. And that is the sort of materialist way of looking at spirituality and faith, you know? Yeah. The, the well, infinite I mean, is the point. <laughs> right. Well, actually, you see that in the Bible yeah. because the, the, the creation stories in Genesis are drawn on the commonly held creation myths of other Near, East, Near Eastern people at the time. Yeah. So the, the story in Genesis is taking for granted that this is the story. Everyone knows that's the story, but recasts it in such a way that it's testifying to this singular God mm-hmm. that the Jews worship rather than like a pantheon of gods or whatever. It's kind of like how when Christianity came to Hawaii, one of the first things that was done, you know, Hawaiians didn't, they weren't literate. They didn't read or, you know, they didn't write. They, just, they weren't writing people. That's just, you know, that was something that Westerners brought. Um, the way that way that Hawaii Hawaiians, like, like all Polynesians, remembered their stories and recounted their stories and valued stories was through song. And so one of the, among the first Christians, um, um, I think it was Kepulani, uh, she composed a melee, a chant, um, a Christian chant. And it draws on the imagery of the Kumulipo, which is the sacred chant about the creation and the created order. And so, you know, it, it's a similar kind of thing what Genesis does, is that it takes the story that was common, but then it recasts it in such a way to testify to this new thing that's going on. And so Genesis is that, right? Genesis is, you know, and then, anyway, this, this, this testifies what, you know, kind of what you're saying here, right? Is that there was another religious idea out there and it was embraced by a later religious idea and was seen as laying the groundwork for the new religious idea, right? That basically God adopted this other thing in order to communicate to us what he was doing. Right. And so, right. And that actually opens up a whole cool, a whole interesting avenue that Christianity used to be much more open to in terms of world religions and mission work, which was the idea that, you could say, go to Hawaii and you could look at the native Hawaiian religion and you could sort of hold it on the same footing as like say the old Testament, that this is laying groundwork for something that God is doing. And then you can say that, oh yeah. So, you know, like Lono or whatever, like some God in, 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 you know, in the Polynesian religion is sort of like figures a lot like Jesus and say, okay, well, Jesus is that Jesus incarnates that. Right. So God you had the groundwork, the space within you had been opened for this new revelation to come. And now what you were, what you were striving for has arrived. Right. And so it was a lot more, a lot more open, you know? And so, like I said, like that, that, that's an interesting angle to way, you know, and, and I think, you know, the way it looks at it, it's like, yeah, one doesn't give birth to the other. They're sort of yeah. commingling. As I say, you know, if, you know, for the Bible in particular, I, I said this actually in my sermon on Sunday, you know, if we're going to call it the sword of the spirit, then it's a folded steel, st- folded steel sword, right? It's just layers upon layers, right. you know, interpreting one another and, and and speaking to one another. Yeah. Dude, I, I just got to say, I, honestly, I feel like we've been talking like nonstop for like a year. I know. I I am uh, a little burned out, really. Um, do you have anything else you want to say? 
I mean, I think we said it all. Uh, I don't have anything else to say. Um, Matt, do you have anything you want to say? A year. I, I sit here for like a year and listen to you ramble and rant and go on and on and on. And I have to listen to your opinions and, and you call on me now. I don't, I don't know why I sat on this podcast and why I haven't left and just done my own thing. I don't have anything to say, JP. How about you? Are you finished yet? Huh? You got anything else you want to add? Maybe Chuck? He's pent up. Yeah. You know what? I think that's a good place to end this episode. Good journey. Oh, is it now? Let him talk. Let's end it. We'll just, we'll just turn it off right in the middle of the